The Guardian. During April, The Guardian's podcasts are partnering with audible.co.uk. Audible has over 60,000 digital audiobooks and are offering Guardian podcast listeners one for free. Visit guardian.co.uk slash audible to find out more. I'm John Plunkett, and this week we dial M for Media Talk with the Murdochs, Mr. Burns, and more Scandinavian TV drama with The Bridge. A week before James and Rupert Murdoch are due to give evidence at the Leveson Inquiry, we look at Tom Watson's book about News Corporation and look ahead to Leveson's biggest week yet. And we talk to Harry Shearer, star of The Simpsons and Spinal Tap, about his latest TV project and why it would never have been made in the US. Plus, we talk telly with Vicky Frost, who points a remote control at new BBC4 drama The Bridge, Smash, which is a bit like Glee, but not quite. And we ask who you'll be voting for at the BAFTAs, Sherlock or Celebrity Juice. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined by Dan Sabber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Tech, and we begin, where else, with all things phone hacking related. Labour MP Tom Watson, the scourge of the Murdochs and one of the leading figures in the phone hacking investigation, has written a book, Dial M for Murdoch, with independent journalist Martin Hickman. It's subtitled News Corporation and the Corruption of Britain, which gives you a fair clue as to what it's about. Uh, Dan, you read the book on speed dial, I imagine. What's it got to say? Well, it doesn't say a lot that's new. Uh, I know there was something made a bit about a revelation that uh, uh, Tom Watson interviewed Neville Thurlbeck and uh, former News of the World chief reporter, and Neville had told him that uh, uh, that reporters were tasked, uh, the instructions supposedly came from the editor's office, that were sort of tasked to find out whatever they could about the sort of sexual habits or predilections or uh, of, of, of MPs on the committee, and it was sort of one reporter per two committee members. Um, uh, and that was a kind of revelation uh, uh, in its way. Uh, but what's really important about the book, I think, are two things. Firstly, it's just quite a pacey, readable sort of uh, account, mainly um, from from public material uh, uh, about the sort of phone hacking saga and how it developed and how it played out. Uh, it does give a prominent part to Tom Watson, but what the heck? Uh, Tom was the sort of you know the Labour MP at the heart of the. Uh, the battle against Murdoch, if you like, and uh, 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 it may be generous to him in that respect, but he, he is after one of the co-authors of the book. Um, uh, what it doesn't do is it doesn't tell you so much that's new. There's not so much about the sort of internal workings or machinations of News Corp and how it responded to that, but then News Corp is a pretty close company and it's hardly likely that Rupert Murdoch was going to give Tom Watson an interview, was it? So I don't think we expect too much there. But if you're interested and you haven't followed every twist and turn and you want to understand what happened last summer and its sort of fallout and its ramifications and meaning, then this is a good book to read. But what Tom wants to say, I think, is that, you know, that News Corp operates, it's like a shadow state. It operates in a state within a state. Uh, there's a lovely phrase, I think, where he talks about in, in an elite space above democracy is where sort of Rupert Murdoch hovers. And I think uh, uh, that's... Um, uh, I think that's a sort of interesting interpretation and one that potentially could gain currency when the Murdochs give evidence next week because I think next week is going to be uh, very lively indeed. Um, the last time we saw them, well, this was when they were together, was their um, appearance before the Common Select Committee. Um, and there weren't really any sort of explosive punches landed this time around and, and people in some quarters, particularly their critics, were expecting Leveson maybe to do rather better. I think Leveson will do better. Uh, uh, I mean, this is the closest you're going to get to Rupert Murdoch being on trial. You know, he's giving evidence under oath for at least a day, so I don't know, six hours or something of sort of floor time, as it were. He, he'll be talking not just about phone hacking, but about the whole sort of sweep of his 
career in Britain. You know, Rupert Murdoch's been the top of British public life, a figure in British public like life since the late 1960s. So an extraordinarily long period of time when you think about it. Undoubtedly, he'll be talking about his relationship with Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair, John Major, all the prime ministers, Cameron and Brown, of course. Very, very relationships there. That's going to be interesting. And I think it wouldn't be Rupert Murdoch if he didn't try to move the agenda away from a sort of the defensive um, position vis-a-vis phone hacking. I'm, I, I mean, I can't see that we're going to learn a lot more about hacking for the moment because, you know, until we get to the criminal trials, I think is where, if there already is, where we really learn about that. So I think it's what he says about politicians and his relationships with them is much more likely to become the story and, and how uh, Murdoch tries to push things away from him and out there. And he will. He always does. And who's going to be doing the quizzing? Uh, we don't know. But if it's not Robert Jay, uh, the, uh, 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 the man with a closely cropped beard, uh, I'll be amazed. Uh, he's the top. QC on the inquiry and he's been doing all the sort of high profile questioning uh, Jay's performances are I would say um, he can be brilliant and terrible depending really on his mood and what they're trying to achieve uh, with James Murdoch could be better if he's aggressive and tries to interrupt a lot and tries to put him on the spot and maybe even rile him and with Rupert it's best to be gentle and let Rupert be expansive because R- the Rupert's mind is slow it is more discursive and works at a slightly slower pace and, and if you start getting in Rupert's face so to speak Rupert tightens up and doesn't this doesn't become very interesting at all and what's the timetable because they're not the only ones giving evidence next week yeah apparently not although we'll probably not feel like that next week uh, uh it's not a it's not a heavy week by numbers but wow in terms of uh, media personalities I think uh on Monday we have Evgeny Lebedev we never heard him give evidence uh, uh in such a high profile way um uh the proprietors they like to call him but the kind of man in the Lebedev in charge at the standard and the independent a young man um uh, not particularly sort of uh, known in british public life will be very interesting to see how he operates and then uh, even more intriguingly uh, for season media watchers will be aidan barclay uh, he will hate doing this the barclay family are rec- not reclusively private and will uh, uh, they own the Telegraph, of course? And this is the first time he's appeared in public ever. And uh, you know, in any other week, this will be that in itself will be quite fascinating. It will still be fascinating, but you know, Rupert Murdoch is Rupert Murdoch. Well, the Murdoch's appearance will follow a week of numerous developments in the in the phone hacking scandal and related fronts. Uh, we've also had more arrests and the police investigation into illegal payments to public officials. Three more people uh, arrested, including another Sun journalist, Duncan Larkin, the Royal Editor. That's right. Uh, was arrested and two other people not journalists uh, uh, in, in, in Lancashire so that's that's 12 um, Sun journalists arrested well all 13 if you count Rebecca Brooks uh, uh, who was arrested um, on the sort of crap payments issue uh, last year although Rebecca obviously has a number of positions at News International um, the investigation into crap payments at the Sun goes on and so um, uh, it's got the battle over that has gone quiet. But if the Sun thought it was, they were perhaps sort of, you know, it was quietening down. They've they've been proven wrong. On the other hand, um, uh, you know, we still, you know, this this this, the, you know, on the other hand, we we wait for people to be charged. Talking of which, uh, the Met has also referred phone hacking files to the CPS. Uh, no one's officially identified, but are there clues as to who they're related to? And, and when are we going to find out if the CPS, uh, when we like to find out if the CPS are going to bring charges? Yeah, an important incremental development, which is uh, four files being passed by the cops to the CPS for a charging decision. Uh, uh, that suggests that the police think there's a case to answer. Now it's up to the CPS to, to do so. 
uh, we didn't know. That's right. Or Keir Starmer, who gave a briefing earlier this week, uh, described the files in broad terms. So we're trying to identify them. Uh, uh, file two was about one journalist and six others relating to um, uh, 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 sort of allegations of perverting the course of justice. Well, uh, Rebecca Brooks and um, and six other people connected with her have been arrested on that basis. So that would appear to be appear to be a likely um, uh, appear to be file two. I think uh, uh, file three is about one journalist uh, uh, um, and a suspicion of um, intimidating a witness. Uh, that is almost certainly Neville Thurlbeck, former News of the World chief reporter. He issued a statement, kind of, sort of saying as much, saying he, you know, looked forward to the process moving forward and him rebutting these, uh, uh, reject, rebutting these ch- allegations. And uh, that's all about um, uh, Will Lewis is the um, chap in charge of the Management Standards Committee at News. News Corporation not, uh, um, been passing on information based on internal emails to police, not very popular with reporters there. And Thelbeck wrote a blog post noting that, or claiming that Lewis had hired extra security at his home in Muswell Hill and cited the uh, the street name. So uh, clear, I clear sort of jigsaw identification, if you will. I think on 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 a, on a couple potentially. Uh, on the others, file one and file four, much more mystery surrounds. File four is looks like a phone one journalist on suspicion of a breach of the um, RIPA, the Regulatory Regulation Investigatory Powers Act, which is all about phone hacking. So that looks like a hacking case, but no one's got a clue which one. File one was about is about a journalist and a police officer. And um, uh, despite a lot of speculation online, I, I don't think we're uh, uh, in any way certain who that is. OK, we can follow all things Leveson and phone hacking related at mediaguardian.co.uk. James Murdoch's Stuart Leveson on Tuesday, Rupert on Wednesday and very possibly Thursday as well. And Dan, just before you go, a, a word on Simon Cowell. Tom Watson's not the only man with a book out. Yeah. Uh, Tom Bower's written one about uh, the great man himself, uh, Mr. Cowell. Um, in the spirit of reading the newspaper serialisation so our listeners don't have to, what have you learned about the impresario? Uh, I think we'll learn more from the book than the serialisation. We learned one huge thing uh, uh, from from the Sun, which bought up the serial for about a hundred grand, uh, 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 snatched it away from the Mail, which I think rather arrogantly thought it was the only real buyer in town. The big thing we learned, obviously, was that Cal had a fling with Danny Minogue back in two thousand and seven. Long suspected, always denied, finally confirmed. I think Bauer took four goes. He says before he got Cal to admit it. Uh, uh, after that, we haven't really learned anything interesting at all. Uh, judging by the serialisation, we've learned that Cal has black loo roll, that he has a water feature, which makes it look like he's walking on water when he stands on it, that his engagement, uh, uh, his recent engagement, everyone thought was a bad idea, that he had a fling with a woman who took money out of a hotel room, uh, uh, took his uh, wallet and uh, laptop afterwards. I mean, all that, I mean, to say tawdry, uh, it hardly makes the man look like a lion of, uh, of of television or music. It just makes <laughs> him look like a... Just a bit odd. Well, I mean, is, it, is the whole thing a bit weird? I mean, he's had two, is it 200 hours of interviews is apparently given to to, to bow yeah. but it but it's an old it's an unauthorized biography and then matt's clifford's gone into itv saying well you know cal should never have spoken to him is this just um you know the, the classic kind of simon cal circus rolls on or, or or has he lost control of this a bit do you think uh, I, probably a bit of both dan thanks very much 
And you can find out how Cal's Britain's Got Talent fares in its new slot on Saturday night on mediaguardian.co.uk on Monday. From one superstar to another, it's time to talk to Mr Harry Shearer. You may remember him as Derek Smalls from Spinal Tap or Mr Burns, Waylon Smithers and a whole host of other characters from The Simpsons. We met up with Harry at a Broadcasting Press Guild lunch to talk about his latest role as Richard Nixon as part of Sky Art's Playhouse Presents series. I began by asking Harry about the show. It's basically a compendium of some of the great revealing conversations, not revealing about politics or foreign policy or history stuff or any of that, but about the character of Richard Nixon, uh, one of the most psychologically bizarre uh, characters ever to occupy high office, probably in any country, but certainly in the United States. And uh, he did the great service to us of uh, recording all of this stuff, uh, supposedly for posterity. Well, I'm posterity. <laughs> and we're, so we're performing the, the, uh, the conversations verbatim. Uh, I play Nixon, and there's a wonderful cast of uh, his aides and advisors, including uh, Henry Kissinger, other characters from the administration. And it's done as if... Nixon had placed cameras as well as microphones in the White House, so it, it doesn't play as the, uh, though it's a historically historical recreation drama uh, with all the turgidity that that uh, suggests. It's uh, played with. We listen to the tapes. We listen to the the intonations and rhythms of of these remarkable scenes uh, played as normal conversation and try to play it that way. And how did you transform hundreds of hours of, of spoken word into a, a thirty-minute TV show? Um, a lot of listening and a lot of editing. Um, my partner, my writing partner in the series is uh, Professor Stanley Cutler from the University of Wisconsin, who is the, America's leading expert on the tapes, filed all the lawsuits that made the tapes public uh, against the government. Um, and we just have plowed through uh, a lot of stuff. Stanley and I both had specialization, knowledge, areas of specialized knowledge in terms of certain tapes, certain conversations that we'd come across and we'd regale each other with them and say, well, all right, let's find more of that stuff. And more of that stuff is definitely there. So uh, we gave ourselves certain themes that we were looking for, certain motifs and um, that we knew would crop up over and over again and, and then just listened for the most, um, shall we say, um, robust representations of them. And, uh, and I wove them into a script. You said you wouldn't have considered pitching the show to a, a, an American channel such as HBO. How does the how does the American TV marketplace differ from the the one in the UK in your experience? I think that um, the American channels are well established enough now. I mean, I did stuff for HBO and, and a couple of their networks in their very early days when, uh, and it was a fairly freewheeling environment. Um, I think that they, like all uh, established show business institutions in America seem to uh, crave finding the formula. And once they find the formula, what their show look is, then that's all they want to do. You know, um, Once they had a big hit with The Sopranos, what all they wanted to do was do another Sopranos. They haven't really had a great track record at, at any kind of original comedy in, in quite a while, I don't think. Uh, I mean, Larry, well, Larry Sanders wasn't show, it was Showtime, but they used to do a lot of stand-up. 
it, anyway, I just don't think that they conceive that as an HBO kind of show. Once you think that you have a kind of show that's sort of characteristic of you, they're all about marketing. You know, uh, this network is about comedy, but a certain kind of comedy. This network is about drama, but a certain kind of drama. This kind of, you know, they all are about niches and marketing, and and that therefore regulates their decision making. And if you just come up with a goofy idea for a show like this that doesn't isn't marketing driven. Um, you're in the wrong country. I think John Cusack said recently that Hollywood doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's, it's just banks. Does that have echoes of that in, the, in a U.S. TV? Well, I mean, you know, I realized a long time ago that movie studios were basically banks that just made movies as a, as a side uh, because when you, when you read the deals, you know, the, the, the most carefully crafted parts of the deals are the financial details, and it's, oh, prime plus 85%, eh? Nice work. Um, but... They are in the banking business, and, and films are just collateral along the way at this point. Um, and in TV, I, th- I wouldn't describe it as, as, as much about banking as I would about marketing. I think the, the even in non-commercial media, not, not, not non-commercial, but non-advertising-driven uh, media like, like pay television, uh, there are so many options, there are so many channels, uh, the, the desire, the drive to distinguish yourself and, and brand yourself. I mean, everything's a brand in the States. And uh, so that becomes a sort of self-sealing bubble, you know. Okay, we're about this brand. And if you're not thinking in that brand... I mean, if, if you're pitching shows and you want to be in the television business, then you think, okay, what are they looking for? If you, have a, if you start from the place of what kind of show do I want to do, uh, you're in the, again, you're in the wrong country. Is part of that a result of digital media and the proliferation of uh, you know viewer choice out there now? I mean, you as a comedian, do you, can you go straight online? Is that is that a substitute for traditional broadcasters, or is still that is that still the end goal? Um, I, I'm involved with this digital uh, channel in the states called MyDamnChannel.com, which is on online and four and a half years still standing. So yes, that's 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 a, a vi- viable option for me and for a lot of other folks. Uh, uh, a comedian in the states did his last. Uh, live stand-up show, and instead of selling it to a a TV channel, just sold the DVD to his fans on his website. That's another way of doing it. I think that people are discovering more and more ways of getting around the established uh, institutions because, for not just me, but for a slew of folks, it's just too too, uh, narrow. The the, the confines are too narrow. The, the, The criteria are again, so marketing-driven as opposed to creatively driven. And, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not a marketer. Yeah, and they, miss ris- they risk missing out on the next generation's talent. Well, they do. Uh, but so be it. Uh, and you're famous for one animated comedy, of course, but you're working on your own uh, topical animated satire. For, for My Damn Channel, uh, my producer uh, friend and I are, are in our fear of, of trying to get this animation uh, thing that... that would be remarkable. I mean, we've seen tests of it this year that are remarkable, and uh, the idea is to get really good-looking animation going in such a, a short time span that it can be utterly topical uh, and uh, kind of astonishing. So, And is that up and running online now? No, no, no. We're still looking at tests. And you hope to find a, a, a network home for it eventually? You know, if we build an audience for it online and a network just says, just keep doing what you're doing, I, I'd be a fool to turn that down. But, um, um, you know, 
I've, I'm making my money. Uh, what I do now is, is strictly for what allows me to do the work that I want to do. So if somebody says, you know, we'll keep hands off, just do what you do, in that regard or any other, I'm there. And you made a documentary about New Orleans and Katrina, but that, that didn't find a home in the U.S. I didn't find a television home. Um, it, we, it was, uh, and by the way, Katrina was a hurricane. What, what flooded New Orleans was uh, a, an engineering, a man-made engineering disaster. Um, but we, we did uh, uh, the film showed in cinemas, uh, and it's now available on iTunes, uh, both in the United States and in the U.K. It's called The Big Uneasy, and it's the actual story uh, told through the the uh, the investigators who eminent scientific investigators who looked into the disaster in New Orleans and found out what really caused it. And just finally, Harry, uh, it should be a good year for satire, 2012 in the U.S. Yeah, I think the really the great part of it is over. The the, the circus of the Republican primaries uh, over the past year, the the great characters that traversed the uh, political stage, including Herman Cain. I don't know if he he made a, a big a big splash here, but the pizza chain magnate who's uh, main political uh, platform was a simplified tax plan known as 999. And he just kept repeating 999 everywhere he went. Uh, Michelle Bachman, uh, a a remarkable uh, woman candidate, uh, basically shoved Sarah Palin out of the spotlight uh, in the Sarah Palin sweepstakes. And then, of course, uh, Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum, Rick Santorum, who enrolled his chromosomally damaged three-year-old daughter as a lifetime member of the National Rifle Association just on his way out. Uh, I don't think that neither, either Obama or, or uh, Romney can uh, scale those heights of comedic greatness, but I have my hopes. Harry Shearer there. Now, I'm a big fan of his, but there was an even bigger fan buzzing away behind us for the first half of that interview. So, apologies for that. We've taken him outside and pulled the plug off. Nixon's The One airs on Sky Arts on Thursday, the 26th of April at 9pm. It's TV time now, with appropriately enough, The Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Frost. Hi there, Vicky. Hello. So we start off this week with some awards, but awards which we can vote for. The winner is The Only Way is Essex. Yes, this is um, the YouTube Audience Award for the BAFTAs. Uh, So it's the only BAFTA that is voted for by the public. Everything else is done by juries. So the shortlist was uh, announced on Thursday, and it includes Celebrity Juice, Educating Essex, Fresh Meat, Frozen Planet, The Great British Bake Off, and Sherlock. And this is the award that last year was famously won by uh, The Only Way is Essex. Yes, um, I should say an unlikely BAFTA winner. Yeah, a very unlikely BAFTA winner, and absolutely hilarious for when they won for uh, Martin Freeman's stony face was just the best thing about the whole of the BAFTAs. I thought. And the great news is, is Sherlock's nominated again, so we yes. can we can we can replay that moment. Let's hope he's there. Yes, when um, it gets beaten by, by celebrity juice, juice. <laughs> that does slightly worry me that that is what will happen. Um, I should say, as a disclaimer, I sit on the panel that decides the shortlist, ah. which is a. Uh, quite fun, quite vigorous evening, shall we say. Um, yes, that I think that is uh, the danger in this shortlist, is that Celebrity Juice romps to victory and uh, poor old Sherlock doesn't win. This is a good thing, isn't it? Because BAFTAs, uh, back in my day, which was approximately 10 years ago, they used to get called the NAFTAs because they were sort of out of touch with uh, what mm. youngsters were watching. So this at least kind of, um, you know, uh, covers that off. 
Yeah, it does. And there's no reason at all why the BAFTAs shouldn't have an audience award. I mean, I think it's a good thing to have an award that's voted by the public. But of course, there's that thing that, you know, not everyone has seen. It's not like the public are making a decision in the same way because not everyone's going to have seen every show and make a verdict. That's on, just like on, panels, isn't it? Judging panels. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. They're all watching <laughs> never, their entirety. Never. And, um, and also, you know, I think there's that thing that if you're on screen at the moment, then, you know, you're much more influential. Uh, if you have perhaps a younger demographic, then perhaps more likely to vote online. Although, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. But yes, it will be amusing to see if basically Celebrity Juice can pip Sherlock again. And is it a proper BAFTA? Is it a different colour? How do they differentiate it? Or do no, you, I think it's a it? proper BAFTA, yeah. Mm, okay, well, good luck all, especially, uh, what should we say, fresh meat, maybe. Uh, yeah, I'd quite like to see Frozen Planet do well. Mm. Or Frozen Meat. Frozen Meat. <laughs> or Fresh Planet. <laughs> In your freezer <laughs> aisle now. <laughs> Moving on, uh, among last year's uh, disappointed losers for the YouTube award were, uh, was The Killing. But coming up this Sunday is another um, Scandinavian drama, The Bridge. Yes, uh, this is quite an interesting thing in that it slightly makes your head explode to begin with. Well, so, like Scanners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 80s horror film you clearly don't remember. I don't. Right. I'm sorry. Okay. I didn't watch much television as a child. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's a Danish-Swedish co-production um, about a Danish detective and a Swedish detective who are brought together because of a body that is found in the middle of the Orisund Bridge, which connects uh, basically Copenhagen to Malmö. Um it's not, I'm afraid, London, Volanda sort of brought together in an amazing kind of crazy duo. Uh, it is some new detectives who we haven't met before. Uh, and the Swedish lady in it uh, is uh, called Saga. Now, she is she is being hailed sort of on the Radio Times this week as the new Sarah Lund. I don't know whether that's an altogether useful tag, uh, to be honest, because... I actually was fairly distracted, I think, when I first saw it by this. She did have some quirks that were a bit Sarah Lundish, and I was a bit like, oh, this is a bit weird. And knitwear? Um, uh, not knitwear. She has leather trousers. Ah. So, you know, ah. <laughs> a difference. Um, and then the Danish detective, who is called Martin, is sort of uh, this very laid back. He's, he's a really interesting character, actually. And they're a nice duo together. And so they start investigating this murder, which... Uh, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I mean, I think it's fair enough to say that it, there are other murders too. I think we can go that far okay. in are there a detective. Sort of, are there hilarious cultural clashes between the, the Swedes and the Danes, or are they, uh, <laughs> from an outsider, I'd imagine they're quite similar. I'm probably entirely wrong. Uh Yes, I think that there are there are a couple of moments, you know, like when the Swedes in the police station sort of don't understand what Martin the Dane is saying. And I think that's probably a bit more hilarious if you are Swedish or Danish. Possibly so. If yeah. you're neither and you're watching both via subtitles. Um, but when this was broadcast, what is weird is you're watching a subtitle drama that has already been broadcast as a subtitle drama. I mean, because when it was broadcast in Sweden, it had the Danish bits were subtitled and in Denmark, the Swedish bits were subtitled. So it's sort of... I don't know. It's sort of like a kind of this crazy BBC Four makes your head spin thing if you think about it too much. Yeah, my head, as you predicted, has exploded. <laughs> yeah. But I'm holding on to it until at least the end of the podcast. So, uh, well, it sounds, uh, it sounds good. As good as The Killing? Um, I, I'm still quite open-minded about it. I'm not quite sure what I feel about it. It's, the story is really great, um, but I'm not, I'm not quite convinced that the quality is quite the same. But I've only seen the first two episodes so far, so um, I guess it's where it goes from there, really. You know, there's a lot of setup and exposition to begin with, so I sort of feel like I will 
withhold judgment slightly until we'll, I get a bit further in. We'll come back to that, no doubt. And another new series uh, this week, uh, which doesn't require subtitles, uh, unless you have a sleeping child upstairs, is Smash. They'll make a star. I got a call back from Marilyn. I got a call back. She has the experience. She has the talent. I think she's a star. But in the spotlight... I trained for this. There can only be one. Yes, this is uh, on Skylands again, and I actually won't withhold my judgment quite so much on it, I'm afraid. I, I don't really love it. It's kind of being billed as a... You don't really love it. Come on, you hate it. I don't hate it. Okay. I just don't... I haven't really fallen for it at all. Um, it's, it's sort of billed as a grown-up glee, if you like, and it's set within the world of Broadway musicals. So, in some ways, the songs are less intrusive because you are at least in sort of a musical world. Um, and it's got Angelica Houston in it, who is absolutely brilliant, fantastic to see her on screen, and she is the reason I would watch Smash. But the script makes me want to punch myself in the head. It's just bad in places, you know, really, really not good. And it's got some great people in it. It's got Deborah Messing in it. And, you know, but they're having to work quite hard with what they've got. And um, I could have probably done without the songs. And it's got a flash forwards uh, Jack Davenport. Yes, yes, it has. It was great. Yeah, it's great. I mean, the problem, you know, it's got basically a great cast. I quite like the conceit. I don't mind the songs too much, although I could do without them being at such length, but the script just really makes me weep. Which suggests maybe it won't come back, because the, the glee... Uh, the glee. The glee. <laughs> <laughs> I should have kept the, the definite article. It would have been a much bigger show. But, I mean, that script was... Um, you, know, you never complained about that. No, you never did. I mean, um, again, I've seen the first two episodes, so maybe it gets better. But I think it had a bit of a rocky old time in the States. I, I may be wrong. Uh, and also this week, a new documentary series on BBC Two was The 70s, which... Uh, was a, uh, a build, at least, as a cut above the sort of I Love 1970s kind of uh, clip show. This was actually a, mm. a, a, proper, a proper history show. Yes, it was Dominic Sandbrook, who um, I quite like on TV, actually. Uh, I think he tends to sort of author an argument quite strongly um, and really follow it through. So I quite enjoy watching him, although um, it was slightly, I don't know if, I don't know if you saw it, I, I found it slightly disconcerting that he seemed to have to be filmed from a different angle for every shot. It was quite weird. I felt like I'd seen every angle of Dominic Sandbrook's face by the end of it. Right. Um, Next week, the back perhaps, of his head. Yeah, not perhaps necessarily. But, he, you know, he's got this interesting argument that, you know, lots of what, you know, we think of as happening sort of in the 60s was actually in the 70s. It was his decade of great change. Um, socially and it's yes it's quite interesting I don't agree with all his arguments he had sort of quite an odd argument around the miners about them striking just because they wanted more things which I I didn't think was uh, I thought it was quite an odd argument I didn't think it really quite stood up but you know it's quite an interesting watch at any rate Um, and also factually I mean BBC Two is having a good factual uh, week actually because Mary Beard uh, was back the following evening with her with uh, Meet the Romans and Really, I could watch Mary Beard present anything all day. Every I, angle of her face as well. I would be happy to see every angle of Mary Beard's face and the back of her head because she's just so brilliant to watch. To me, she is everything a factual presenter should be. She is extremely knowledgeable about her subject. She's extremely passionate about her subject. And she just enthuses and draws you in. And she's not particularly bothered about being very presentationally great. I mean, at times she's quite annoying to watch, I think, if you're not really into it. 
Uh, but I think that shouldn't matter too much. You know, I think we've got carried away with being, you know, having great presenters when actually what you want is a great authority and she is fantastic to watch and she just makes me want to go back to university, read classics and become some sort of professor of Roman history, which is never going to happen, but it's nice to dream. <laughs> well, BBC Two has a habit of this now with someone like uh, Professor Brian Cox sort of taking experts from their field and turning them into uh, TV stars, really, when they don't necessarily have the... Uh, don't necessarily look like obvious TV presenters. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Brian Cox is possibly a little bit more obvious than Mary Bid, but it's just, you just want to see people who really know what they're talking about. I mean, you know, in the same way that Dominic Sandbrook, you know, really has an opinion and lots to say about it. That's really what you want to see. Okay, Vicky Frost, thanks very much. Thank you. My thanks to Dan, Vicky, and of course, Harry Shearer. Nixon's the one, Sky Arts, 26th of April. You can leave your feedback on anything and indeed everything you've heard on the Media Talk blog or our Facebook wall. I'm John Plunkett, and Media Talk was produced by Jason Phipps. Thanks for listening. During April, The Guardian's podcasts are partnering with audible.co.uk. Audible has over 60,000 digital audiobooks and are offering Guardian podcast listeners one for free. Visit guardian.co.uk slash audible to find out more. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.